You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today we've got Jordan Rong, who is the co-founder of Predicting Alpha. He's won the largest options trading competition in Canada, I believe, twice, right? And yep. he also runs a seven-figure uh, fund dedicated to trading options and volatility. So first off, thank you so much for being on the podcast, Jordan. It's awesome to have you here. Shravatsa, it's great catching up with you, buddy. Awesome. So uh, Jordan, could you share a little bit about your background, how you got into finance and your journey to where you are today? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um... So I think like uh, a lot of retail traders, uh, you know, we start out with maybe reading a Warren Buffett book or, you know, a book on value investing. Um, you know, my, my dad always had uh, BNN, which is like in Canada, the business news network playing uh, when I was a kid. And so that's, that's really how I got started, right? Just, you know, seeing this every day coming downstairs and having, you know, someone talking about stocks and how they're making all this money in stocks um, is really what piqued my interest in and in, in how I got started. Um, and then from there, I just started reading, you know, the classic books uh, that I guess every retail trader uh, starts, you know, starts reading when they first get in. And, you know, you sort of, you know, in university, I believe you studied economics or something, right? You did not study, say, you know, statistics or mathematics or something or get a PhD of some sort. So how did you actually go about becoming a quant without having a math background or a PhD background? Yeah, so actually, I, I was actually right out of high school. I was an electrician for a bit um, and then I had a serious accident on my on my hand, uh, like uh, had like 12 stitches there. And I was like, you know, this is not for me. Uh, and I went back to school for financial economics, um, which is a little bit math intensive. Um, and f- from there, it's just, you know, getting into quantitative finance, um, I want to first say is quant is not like, you know, AI or machine learning or, you know, all these, these fancy words that, that, that people talk about. It's just, it's really just putting uh, numbers to your idea, right? It's trying to be a little bit more objective and, and less subjective. Um, and I think every, every good trader kind of finds their way towards quantitative finance. Um, it's because it's really hard to make money subjectively. And, uh, you know, when you, when you talk about that, now, me and you have had conversations on sort of technical analysis and, you know, you, you have sort of a story to share about, you know, how you use technical analysis and how you made the shift from, you know, technical analysis of following like chart patterns and stuff into quantitative finance. So could you, t- could you talk a little bit about that? Number one, you know, how you got started with technical analysis and, you know, when you found or what made a click that, you know, at least for you, it doesn't work and you made the shift to quantitative finance. Yeah, um, Shrivastava, like there's a super easy barrier to enter or super low barrier to entry to come into technical analysis, right? Uh, You can go and pick up a book and some guy's telling you that, um, hey, you know, this falling maple leaf pattern works. I think, you know, as Eunice Sinclair calls it, the falling maple leaf pattern. Uh, You know, there's there's, um, all these types of patterns that you you can see. and, And once you start seeing it, like in real time, it kind of feels real, right? It's like, oh, you know, I am seeing this ascending triangle or this bull flag. And, um, you know, as humans, we, we see patterns everywhere, right? We see patterns all the time. 
So when, when you first, you know, when you first start training technical analysis, it feels like a, you know, something that you're magically seeing that maybe not everyone else is seeing. And uh, there's a really good story behind technical analysis, right? You know, this thing's breaking out on high volume. It means the banks are coming in and you can, you know, jump in front of them and ride that wave. Um, but, you know, quickly I found out that this is faith-based, right? This is, this is what I call like faith-based trading. Um, someone in a book told me, hey, there's this pattern here and it works. Or some guru told me, hey, there's this pattern here and it works. But I didn't really know if it worked. It was kind of like faith, right? I, I, just, I believed in it. Um, and, you know, you can only trade the head and shoulders pattern for a certain amount of time before you realize like, hey, this is not working for me. Right. Um, so I found someone, his name's uh, David Aronson. And what he said was, technical analysis is not bad. Right. It's the subject, uh, the, the, the subjective technical analysis. Um, you know, when you start being able to test these ideas, it becomes objective. Right. And, and that's what he called uh, evidence based technical analysis. Right. Which is, which is quantitative trading. Um, so I kind of transitioned over into that area um, afterwards. After, after burning, you know, burning my hand quite a bit. I mean, I remember you, you said that uh, you, uh, you went on vacation to Portugal, I believe, uh, trying to trade technicals and. <laughs> oh man, yeah, dude, it was like, uh, well, I'm, I'm what, I'm, I'm 18 or 19. And I said, you know what? There's too many distractions here. You know, your friend's calling you. Uh, so I was like, you know, let, let me take like a, a two month vacation and just go somewhere where uh, there's a beach and I can just study technical analysis and how, how, how could I not win? You know, mm -hmm. if I spend all this time um, learning about this stuff and, you know, obviously it, it didn't work out quite as, uh, quite as, I, as well as I expected it to. And, you know, one of the things you mentioned at the start was that, you know, today you could just pick up a book on technical analysis. I mean, you could probably find a free PDF online. So sort of the information is very democratic. But, you know, uh, do you think that, at least in your opinion, say if it was the 1970s or the 1980s, you would be, you would have been successful as a technical analyst, you know, sort of the payday of people like Paul Tudor Jones, Bruce Kovner, you know, the commodities corporation guys. I know they were major, you know, they majorly focused on a lot of these technicals. So do you think that, you know, if it was say 40 or 50 years ago, you would have been more successful using technical analysis? Or do you think you would have still found your way towards, you know, focusing on, you know, the quantitative stuff? Well, you know, I'm only, I'm only 20, 25 Shravats. And so, it's, um, you know, I, I can't speak too much for, you know, how I was trading back in the old days. But uh, what, what I would what, what guess is that uh, information um, moved a lot slower back then. So, you know, uh, trends would probably be more, more, more prominent, right? Um, it's, it wouldn't be priced in so quickly like it is today. A uh, super quick example would be like post earnings announcement drift, right? That was probably, um, there's a lot more edge in there in trading that back in the day because information moves slower, right? The earnings came out, only a select few people knew about it right away. And then, you know, more people would figure out about it as it, you know, as it spread through, you know, through newspapers, et cetera. Um, and you can actually see that on certain exchanges uh, uh, globally that, you know, there are some areas um where you know exchanges are not as efficient, and so you see these um, you know the information moving slower. So you know what, I, probably maybe using some quantitative technical analysis, uh, even today, um, trend following was probably much uh, did much better back in the day. I would guess, I would assume. Mm -hmm. And no, in today's markets, 
how does one actually go about finding an edge? Is it like, you know, purely focused on back testing and coding? Now, how would you go about finding an edge? Yeah. Um, the way that I trade Srivastin is like, where is the market? Uh, where could the market uh, be inefficient, right? Where, where might there be some, um, someone willing to give up money, right? Um, or maybe someone not understanding a product properly, or maybe there's some regulations that are, are causing this inefficiency to be there. Uh, maybe there's, um, you know, a size barrier where if you're too big, you can't trade it. Um, so the, the way that I really think about it is, um, you know, where might, the, where in this world might there be an inefficiency? And then I start to look, uh, look in those areas and, and use ideas um, and other, uh, other concepts that I've learned from, uh, you know, other people or other areas in the market and apply them to, uh, to areas that might be less efficient. And yeah, since you focus on sort of options and volatility products, you know, what is it that makes the options and, you know, the volatility market as a whole very inefficient? So I wouldn't say it's inefficient, um, but uh, the reason why I love uh, volatility trading is because um, of the, the dimensionality, right? You can do so many different types of things in, in, uh, when, when, you're, when you're trading volatility. It's not, uh, not one-dimensional, like let's say uh, buying and selling a stock, right? Um, and so that's what makes it really unique and really exciting is you can, let's say, recreate certain products using certain things, right? So for example, um, let's say you want to create the S&P 500, right? You can go and buy all the components and to recreate the product. And in volatility, you can also do the same, right? It's like, what's the difference between a call and a put? Shares, right? If I own a call option and, um, you know, I, I, I sell shares, then I, I create a put, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, being able to, to, to uh, you know, have much more products available to you and to be able to recreate things and find these inefficiencies uh, it makes it really exciting. And so, you know, as a so, what kind of strategies do you personally implement in the options market in order to take advantage of you know these uh, these possible inefficiencies, these edges? Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I try to do a, a lot of different trades. Right? Uh, there's a lot of different products that um, uh, you can trade out there. Uh, but most of the stuff, Shravatsan, I would say, is, is, is relative value-based. So given one product, what should another product be trading at, right? And if there's, let's say, a dislocation between them, um, I'll either do one of two things, where I will um, you know, either buy the alpha leg, right, or trade them as a, as a, as a basket. And um, the way you can think about Shravatsan is, like, let's say you have um, the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. And you know these products are going to be pretty efficient, but let's say, for example, they're not efficient. And there's a lot of liquidity being driven into this one product. Um, and so you could, for example, come here and, and let's say sell vol on this asset and buy vol on this other asset, right? And kind of offset that, um, uh, you know, your risk there. Right? You're transferring that liquidity from one product uh, to another product, and, and hopefully getting paid for it. Is this sort of like a version of stat arb or you know statistical arbitrage where you know you find correlation between two products and you try to trade it? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, definitely. You or sometimes you just can recreate the product. For example, let's say we're looking at uh, a stock has um, 
and it has a 4% dividend. Okay, it has a 4% dividend yield. But you notice that, um, you know, you can create the stock with the options, right? Let's say buy a call, sell a put, and there's no dividend being priced into this, right? Now, you know, obviously it's rare you're ever going to find something like that, but that would be an example where now you can just capture the dividend, right? Kind of, you can find these kind of like unique edges and there's tons of them uh, when you start looking at a, a broad range of products. Right. And now, you know, I wanted to go a bit, um, bit deeper into options. So you know, if someone wanted to, you know, become an options client, how much math or how much mathematics do you really need to know to be successful you know, as a quant in the option space? So if you go onto, you know, vault, uh, onto the vault community, volatility you know, shading community on Twitter, you see that everyone's got say, a math PhD or they're reading a PhD in physics or, you know, something crazy. And, you know, if you pick up sort of the more arcane books on options, say, you know, something that focuses on shading the skew or something that focuses on tail risk hedging, and it has all these the fancy Greeks or, you know, these fancy models or calculus or, you know, whatnot. So how much math do you really need to know to be successful as, a, you know, a, a, an options quant? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I don't think you need to know that much. Uh, you, you know, I, I, I think you shouldn't be illiterate, right? But you, you don't need to know as much as, uh, as maybe what's said on Twitter. Um, for example, uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be someone to tell you that, uh, I've read, you know, a lot of Eugene Sinclair's work, and most of the time I'll skip over his uh, his his math stuff. But um, you know, but there's certain formulas, right, that I need to understand. Um, uh, let's say, for example, I'm trading uh, the implied the implied move for an earnings event, right? Um, you really want to understand what's going on in that formula because you know if you want to make some tweaks to it. Um, so you can't be illiterate, Trevatsin, but I would say. You don't need to be a mathematician. You don't. You definitely don't need to be a PhD. Um, you know, uh, uh, the good news is a lot of the work um, has been simplified for you, right? So, for example, I code an R, mm -hmm. and there are some models that I find you know help me out a ton, but I might not actually know all the derivation happening behind the scenes. Um, I just know enough to understand um, what's going on, and and how I can use it going forward. But I I really don't think that you need, um, you know, you need a math PhD or even to be uh, extremely or really well versed in math. You just need to be literate. You know, statistics is important. Got it. And you know, could you give an example of you know the models that you just mentioned and uh, how you actually go about using it? Yeah. So you know, in trading, we're trying to forecast, right? right. Uh, we're trying to forecast the spread, or we're trying to forecast you know tomorrow's return. Um, you know, sometimes we're not trying to forecast, but we're just, let's say, recreating a product, right? We're just trying to, you know, model it and say, okay, how much is this worth given all this other stuff? Um, but when we're forecasting, um, the way that I go about it, Shrivatsan, is I usually have a data set mm -hmm. and I have a target variable. So I spend a lot of time on this. I spend a lot of time on, okay, what am I actually trying to trade? Um, and, you know, you do some transformations to it. Um, let's say you make it stationary or you remove time varying volatility. Um, and then you have your, your candidate variables, right? And those are, you're, you're trying to use, you know, these variables out there that try to help you predict what's going to happen. So uh, example, uh, earnings trading, okay? I'm trying to predict tomorrow's volatility, right? Tomorrow's uh, price movement, given a whole bunch of uh, candidate variables, maybe uh, how much volume there is right now, or how, how, um, 
how, how dispersed the analysts are around the earnings event. Um, what's the implied, what's the average move for this company? And so you have these variables and you try to, uh, you know, tr you try to forecast loosely, right? Because there's so much noise in trading, uh, the, uh, the target variable. Got it. Yeah. So uh, how do you go about, you know, identifying overpriced variance risk premium? And, you know, for anyone listening, uh, variance risk premium is the tendency of the implied volatility to usually be overpriced or to be, you know, over the realized uh, volatility. And, you know, how are you able to exploit such opportunities? And can you give us a few examples? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, tr uh, trading risk premium is going to have a lot more variance than, let's say, trading an inefficiency. Um, and the, the way that I usually approach it is, I, I like to say, like, okay, who's buying here? Who's, uh, so let's say, for example, I'm selling ball. Mm -hmm. um, I, I want to know who's buying here, right? Why they're buying. And most importantly, who's selling and, and why they're not selling, right? So if, uh, let's say, we're seeing huge vol come in um, or, or, or huge buying pressure coming into to volatility on a certain name, um, I want to know who's, who's there, right? Who's buying that stuff? Why is there a lack of liquidity providers, et cetera? Um, and you see this, because uh, this is uh, really important, like really understanding who, who your customer is here, who your client is, I think is very important when you're... Um, when you're doing these types of trades for Vatsyn. Um, I've seen so many times where uh, vol, go, vol you know, picks up quite a bit in a, in a name and you don't know why. And if you, and I've seen so many times where you, know, you go and try to sell that and next thing you know, the company's coming out with some FDA approval or it's a merger, right? Um, knowing, you know, I, I like to look at like a retail sentiment because knowing that there's a whole bunch of retail coming into a specific name and, you know, it's hyped across a lot of the boards. Um, I'm going to be much more inclined uh, to sell, to sell that vol. Um, just because, you know, on average, right. Retail is using it as a Delta bet where I'm trying to look at it through, through the vault lens. So they're going to be overpaying on average uh, for that Delta exposure. Can you give us an example of where you traded you know, an overpriced variant risk premium or, you know, just traded, yeah, just traded, yeah, just uh, traded overpriced variance risk premium and, you know, how you exploited that opportunity. Sure. Um, so I think actually one of the questions I saw, one of your followers on Twitter asked about GME. Yeah. Uh, I was actually short GME vol when it was rallying from 40 to 50. Um, and I cut that quick, you know, thank God, because a few days later, this, the thing gapped up to 200, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that was a time where it didn't work out, but I came back in when the stock was trading about 300 bucks and I could sell the Jan 23, Jan uh, 2023 straddles uh, for $350 at the money. And, you know, within two days that was trading at uh, $200 um, or 250 bucks. So I guess those are two examples of, uh, you know, where I kind of tried to get, uh, you know, try to find mispriced volatility um, where I thought the, you know, the vol was overpriced, right? The risk premium was uh, was overpriced. Got it. I've, uh, so, you know, when you, uh, so, you know, at the start of this interview, you sort of mentioned that, you know, the option space gives you a lot of freedom to structure trades as you want and, you know, making it, you know, structuring it so that it fits your needs. So could you sort of explain, could you sort of give our listeners some tips on how to structure the trade so that, you know, they're able to focus on, uh, you know, a specific opportunity. So for example, Risa, you, you shorted 
the Jan 2023 strata when you traded uh, GME. So could you sort of explain sort of the thought process that goes behind that? Yes. So a good trader is going to, there's going to be two big parts to every good trader. And as they get better, these, these two parts get better. The first is, do I have a good thesis? Okay. So uh, the trade idea, right? That's important. That's very important. And you get better uh, at that, you know, through time. But the second part, Shrivasan, is picking the best structure to fit that specific view, right? So if I think, you know, someone comes to me and says, hey, I think the S&P 500 is going to go up, right? Well, it, with options, so in that case, Shrivatsan, you can just buy the stock, right? Mm -hmm. Or let's say uh, buy a digital, a, a tight vertical spread, right? A tight call spread. Um, but what if the person says, I think the S&P 500 is only going to go up 1% over the next week. Well, now we're adding this volatility component to it now. And we could say, okay, well, if I buy a call option, how much do I make? If I sell a put option, how much do I make? And if I buy a stock, how much do I make at that, you know, specific, uh, at that, for that specific thesis? And picking the best structure to match that thesis is crucial, right? So, um, and that's the beauty of, of options, right? Is you can actually customize uh, a specific trade to match your specific view. And the better you get at picking, you know, a good structure um, to match your, your thesis is, is you become, become better as a trader. And uh, I would actually add to that as well, Shrivatsan. Um, you know, you don't want to be the electrician going around with a, a, um, a Robinson screwdriver everywhere. You know, yeah. you want to be, you want to have the tools on, on, on your belt, right? And if this guy needs something done here, you're able to, let's say, pull out a saw. And if this guy needs something done over here, you're able to pull out a drill. And you know exactly which tool fits best for each job, right? And I think that's uh, super important. As a as a trader, could you also explain sort of how you source ideas or names to actually trade? So, for example, you mentioned GME, but you know, there's the GME, some short squeeze like GME does not happen every single day. You know, it happens you know once every few years, for example. So, how do you go about actually finding opportunities and ideas regularly uh, to trade them? Yeah, uh, that's it's re a really good question. Um, so when it comes to uh, trade ideas, uh, there's there's a few things I do. So, like I said, like I try to think about okay, well, where might where might something be in this world be over underpriced and why? Um, you know, so for example, I might look at look, let's say liquidity uh, features, right? Um, or for example, let's say for earnings trading, it's likely that earnings vol on average is going to be overpriced, right? And there's and the beautiful thing about about let's say earnings trading is there's a bunch of bets you can do, right? Um, you know, selling volatility, for example, is not a, is not a golden bullet or silver bullet. But when you diversify it across multiple bets that are actually, uh, you know, they're actually diversified, um, you know, you can start, you know, building out a strategy. Um, so in terms of finding good strategies, Shrivatsan, I would say it's you know talking to people, uh, you know, having my ear to the ground, listening. Um, you know, it's, it's really a bunch of things. Um, and, you know, so I, I would say, yeah, just, just listening around and, and seeing, you know, what, like, what could be mispriced or what could be, um, you know, over, uh, over underpriced. Uh, another example, actually, Shabbatson here, I'll share with you is um, the whole um, tiger cub blow up. 
right? So I was, I was short ball on, a, on, a, on the basket of names, uh, TME, DISCA, GSX, uh, VIAC, right? And that's just from, you know, listening, seeing what these sh uh, should be priced at, uh, and then doing, going, going about uh, finding a trade there. Have you ever tried actually building, you know, your own options pricing model? Just curious. No, um, I have not. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I love using the Black-Scholes model. Um, you know, it, it, it does the job uh, that I need it to do. Uh, I'm not going to be trying to tinker with, um, you know, with all those outputs there or the inputs. Um, I have I have friends that you know that work at, uh, at at large desks and and they you know of course for hedging purposes will find a better a better model or if they're working on the exotics desk right it, you know they're, they're probably going to be having uh, different models uh, to help them with hedging specific um, uh, most importantly with hedging. Uh, now in uh, in your pinned uh, credit thread. Uh, yeah, you mentioned that you know you use leverage when you are completely sure that an edge exists. So, what's the most leverage you've ever used, and what sort of your confidence criteria you have for using a particular leverage? Yeah, I remember I got some heat on uh, on Twitter for this. Um, I, I I bet pretty big. Like, there's some trades where I've had uh, uh, quite a bit of risk on the table. Um, uh, for like a quasi arb trade, so you know when I say quasi arb, it's like it's almost an arbitrage, but it's not. There's some other, you know, there's there's slightly other. Uh, uh, there's some slight tail risk, right? So you you try, you try to cover those, uh, but for like for certain trades, I bet like seventy percent of my account on uh, on a single wow. trade. Yeah, and I, I'm probably going to take some heat for that, but the, the way I think about it, Shravatsan, is like, look, if you could buy gold on, let's say. Uh, the U.S. exchange and sell gold on uh, the Mexican exchange for two different prices, right? Or let's say you know you buy the S and P on this exchange and sell the S and P on another exchange. How much would you bet? How much of your account would you bet? Or you bet it all? Right. I mean, so it's sort of like an arbitrage. So yeah, I get it. Right. So if 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 your edge is so big, you need to you need to scale to that. You need to bet big. You know, we I hear all the time like you know don't bet more than two percent of your account. But it's like okay. If you have a serious edge, you got to bet big, right? And, and, and most of the guys I know who've made a lot of money in this game uh, have, you know, have been right and added a lot of leverage. And, you know, when it comes to sort of a regular options position, so, you know, when you're just finding overpriced volatile trade and, you know, it's not a quasi R position, it's not a quasi R kind of trade, how much would you go about betting? You know, how would you manage risk when it comes to that, those kind of trades? Uh, it's it's going to be different for each one, Travatson. Um, for the Do you GSX have any guidelines one. or something you can yeah. share? Yeah, so, so sure. So for like this um, this basket, um, uh, the for the Tiger Cub basket that I had, that I was a short vol on all of them, I had 1.5%. Um, uh, I was in the Jan 23s and Jan 22s and 1% uh, of my count of Vega. Uh, so let's say I had a $100,000 count, I would have um, uh, just over 1000 uh, dollars of vega so usually the the way that i think about it is don't have more than one percent of theta um and don't have more than one and a half percent of vega is what i usually go go by so uh i wanted to uh get back into you know trading options and 
you know, one of the things that you do is you trade earnings very regularly as an options trader. And, you know, to most people, yeah, you know, trading earnings tends to be a gamble because you sit there and, you know, you're shy, you're trying to guess what the earnings is going to be. And you know, people usually tend to buy calls or puts depending on whether they think uh, you know, they're going to beat or miss earnings. But you trade earnings in a completely different way. So could you explain how you trade earnings as a quantitative options trader? Yep. So you have your target variable, right? Your target variable is, um, in, in my case, for example, is going to be uh, uh, the size of the move, right? Or the straddle PL. So, you know, I played around with a couple, um, but we will go, we'll talk about the size of the move. So you, you try to forecast um, the size of the move tomorrow, right? Or, you know, the distribution of all the outcomes for, for tomorrow, right? How, how wide is that distribution for this uh, particular stock going to be? Uh, for tomorrow's event, find you know it's such a slight edge, right? Because the thing is, Shravats, and we're going to have you know five hundred bets you could do this 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 season, right? So you have two thousand bets a year. Mm -hmm. So you don't need this huge edge. You need to find something that is you know is significant, right? You know, let's say an R squared of three, of three percent, right? Uh, that is going to be uh, big enough for you to be able to. Uh, to, to, to make money. Um, and so, you know, uh, basically the way I go about it for Batson is just like we talked about earlier today, right? It's find it, uh, you know, work on your target variable, get, pull in a whole bunch of data and really spend time on this data set, figure out what your target variable is, spend a lot of time there, then try to figure out, okay, well, what candidate variables can I add to this to make this, uh, to be able to, uh, predict, uh, tomorrow better. And, you know, we always hear about like neural networks, AI. It's not really about that. It's not really about that. It's about, can we find good uh, indicators? Can we, you know, do some feature engineering to try to figure out uh, what are good features or good variables that we should have in our data set to predict, um, you know, the returns tomorrow. And um, that's where I spend a lot of my time, just, you know, trying to get a good data set going and then using simple models, simple techniques to try and, uh, and and find a small edge. Yeah, as you go back to the concept of models, so I was curious, so how nuanced do your models have to be? I mean, you say simple, you know, could you define what simple means? Because you know, simple in the quantitative space could be very complex to the average person. Yeah, I, um, dude, so I keep it actually very simple. So I try to make things linear as possible. Uh, so I'll transform my variables to try to get them uh, linear. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'll, uh, um, and besides that, honestly, like the, the certain, I use very simple techniques in terms of, okay, can I normalize my data, right? So can, can I make sure everything is on uh, the same axis or, or, or the same, um, uh, yeah, the, on, on the same scale, right? Um, for example, something like if you're looking at earnings, well, a 5% move in Coca-Cola is di way different than a 5% move in Netflix. So I'm going to have to scale it so that a 5% move is a three standard deviation move for Coca-Cola. And let's say a 20% move is a three standard deviation move for, for Netflix, right? So you want to get things on the same scale um, and then just simple models. I mean, just really looking at your data, really understanding your data, um, trying to uh, take out the structure. So for example, you might have um, a distribution and inside that distribution is many other distributions and trying to like strip out what those are, right? And it's, it's mostly, you know, exploring your data and really getting to understand your data. 
uh, that are used out there. You say that last bit again, I think got cut out. Yeah. Um, from where? Starting from where? So you say you're talking about you should really understand your data. Right. You should really understand your data rather than, um, you know, using all these fancy models, right? Simple linear. I mean, sometimes it, sometimes it can't be linear. Um, mm -hmm. You know, so you can use other types of uh, you know, models to help with, you know, a little bit of, of, of curvature. Um, but you want to transform the data usually to get it uh, linear if you can. So you can really understand the model. That's important too, Shabatin. Actually, I'll make a quick touch on that. Um, uh, in, in, when you're modeling and trading, having that experience to find out what good variables should be added to the model is what makes, uh, is what makes you a good a forecaster, in my opinion. Right? It's the reason why a whole bunch of engineers just don't come into this space and make a ton of money. Right? It's, the, uh, it's, the do it's that domain knowledge that can really speed up the process and get, get, and get you some good variables. So, you know, well, before this, we were talking about earnings and, you know, I'm guessing I'm jumping around a lot here, but uh, what about earnings ensures that, you know, the stock tends to move the same because sort of the edge that you trade is that, you know, the move after earnings can usually be either overpriced or underpriced and, you know, you trade based off of that. So, you know, what about earnings ensures that the stock always moves about the same in terms of absolute magnitude after earnings? Are you trying to take all my secrets uh, today, Shravatsan? Exactly. It's yeah. It's the point of the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah. So um, there, there are certain characteristics about you know uh, about companies, right? So for example, if we really think about it, Coca Cola and let's say um, what what's a really volatile one, Shravatsan, that, that you have in mind? Tesla. Right. Tesla. Right. There's a like. There's a reason why. Coca-Cola doesn't move 6% on earnings, but Tesla moves that no problem, right? And so trying to figure out what, what it is, right? And now you can kind of say, okay, well, if I see this feature here, mm -hmm. now I, you know, now I can kind of say, well, other companies like this that have this feature are going to have, let's say, larger moves or smaller moves. Um, and, you know, there's tons of features. There's tons of features. It's not just, it's not just one simple thing. And so, you know, being a good data scientist and trying to figure that out, uh, there's quite a bit of money there. Could you give us an example of a consistently exploitable risk premium and how that's different from trading a simple efficiency, a simple inefficiency? Um, sure. <laughs> uh, sure, sure. Uh, you know, it, it's tough sometimes, right, on these podcasts because, like, you don't want to... Uh, you're trying to beat around the bush, right? Because you can't really, you know, you, you can't really give it all. Um, so, uh, when you think about the risk risk premium, Shabatson, you're, you're trying to think like, okay, well, where's where is um, where are you? Am I going to get paid for risk? Right? Let's say if I'm selling convexity, right? If I'm selling a straddle, mm -hmm. well, there's a chance of a huge blowout, right? Right. So I should be compensated for that risk, not all the time but I should be compensated and trying to find areas where let's say that risk premium is more expensive is, uh, is going to be important. And I think really understanding the client uh, who's really, you know, bidding it up here can help with that. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, but some ways to measure risk, um, you know, variant risk premium is 
or let's say when you're forecasting is um, what, like, like what is the current implied vol? And then what do I think realized vol is going to be in the future? Mm -hmm. Or what do I think implied vol is going to, you know, be in the future? And, um, uh, you know, that spread, right, is, uh, is, 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 is what you're really trying to trade. And then I guess, sorry, yeah. And then you were talking about inefficiencies there. Um, and inefficiency is going to, it's going to be pretty uh, blatant, but usually, and I've, this is where, you know, I had so many problems with this. Like uh, just recently, for example, uh, one of my bank accounts got closed because I was doing, you know, sizable wire transfers and they didn't like that. Right. Um, so it, it's going to be hard to take advantage of. That's, that's the thing about the inefficiency. It's usually going to be uh, capacity constrained. Okay. So, you know, you can't come in there with tons of money and it's usually going to be hard to take advantage of. Okay. Low liquidity, um, you know, regulatory issues, stuff like that. I mean, it's, it's right. That's sort of like true for all markets. Cause you know, for example, you'd probably be able to find something that's really, really cheap. But it ends up being on a stock exchange in say Hungary, where there's no real volume or no real liquidity, and that's you know, it seems to be true for us all markets in a sense. Exactly. Could you also explain, you know, what dispersion trading is? Because the sort of trading, I believe, correlations using options. You know, could you explain, you know, what that is, and you know, just touch up on how you run dispersion strategies. Yeah, so I don't I don't run too much dispersion. I usually do more relative value. Maybe we can chat on that later. But um, dispersion trading is basically, um, and let's say the the ETF and, and uh, the, the ETF space is you have an ETF, and this ETF holds a bunch of components. Okay, let's say it has Apple, Microsoft, and Google, and you try to recreate that basket with the components, and you buy the vols on the components usually, and sell the vol on the index. Um, but where it gets a little tricky is what happens when you have a, an index with 500 stocks, right? So we try to do some, some methods and techniques that say, okay, these stocks, these, let's say five stocks explain the most variance in this ETF. So I'm going to go out and, you know, I'm going to try to recreate it if I can for a cheaper price, buy the vols there and sell the vols in, in the index. Um, the edge is very thin there these days. And uh, it's usually pretty, uh, I would say it's pretty difficult for a retail trader to take advantage of. So, you know, uh, so I also wanted to ask you, sort of, could you give an example of how you've, how you've exploited a, a relative value opportunity? And you know, what's your process for actually finding such, you know, trades? Yeah. Um, so with the relative value, Shrivatsan, you're, you're basically just... Um, uh, taking liquidity from one area and then giving it to somewhere else. Um, you know, you might have one one uh, one ETF where volatility picks up like crazy, mm -hmm. and you know this illiquid ETF that has very similar components. The vols aren't moving. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and transfer the liquidity from this product and put it into this product by let's say selling here and buying here. Um, you know, you, you can even think about it in the value space, right? Where you know, you're, you're buying, uh, let's say the cheapest stocks and then selling the most expensive stocks, right? Um, and, uh, you know, 
it's not it's not very i would, I would say it's it's a, it's a simple concept but it can be pretty difficult to take uh, to um to take advantage of because how your risks uh, change right well if, if let's say the stocks start going up well, how do I how do I start hedging this now? Now you know at, at first let's say I was delta neutral and theta neutral, and now I'm not. Okay, so how do I how do I uh, you know start hedging this? And um, you know that can kind of get a little bit tricky. Um, but other than that, that's that, that's basically what, like what it's all about is just transferring liquidity from one area to the uh, to the next. Absolutely. So it's sort of like. So could you give us like an example of you know, when you took advantage of a relative value opportunity, like a real life example? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, let me think of a good one here. Um, okay, so um, uh, there was a company um, and I was buying the volatility pre-earnings. So I was holding this thing going into the earnings event. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I didn't want exposure to the non-event volatility. Okay, so you know, I, I really want to isolate uh, the volatility of this of this stock of the of the of the earnings move. And so what I did was I bought a straddle on the, on the, on this company, and then I sold volatility on the S and P five hundred, right? Because my thinking is, well, if the S and P crashes, this is also going to crash, right? And I'm long vol here and I'm short vol here. But at the same time, you know, if uh, if the stock doesn't move. Right. Well, I'm going to be losing money on this because let's say macro vol is dropping or the non-event vol is dropping. And so if the non-event vol drops here, I'm also expecting that the S&P vol is going to drop. Right. Or let's say I'm going to make money on, on, on theta on this uh, on this S&P. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm buying vol here and I'm selling vol in the S&P to, uh, to take advantage of that. Um, another example was, uh, you know, within the same stock. So Tesla recently. Uh, Jan 2023 was um, 78 vol. And uh, I think it was April or May at the time was, was 55 vol. Right, so I bought the front, sold the back. And then, you know, the thing, uh, two weeks later, the thing plummeted, which was, you know, very nice, right? Because you're long, because you're long gamma with, uh, uh, with, a, with a reverse calendar there. So, you know, yeah, you're, you're, you're trying to like, you know, sell something that's expensive, buy something that's cheaper or, you know, or supposed to be cheaper. But sometimes, man, you get, you get, uh, you get screwed on both legs, right? That's the worst. That's the worst. And it happens, you know, uh, correlations break down or this didn't move the way you're supposed to do, uh, supposed to move. And, you know, next thing you know, you get really screwed. Yeah. And you brought up two terms there that I, you know, can't stop myself from asking, but I believe the for you know, your before like uh, on Twitter, your uh, bio used to be one man's data is another man's gamma, or one man's gamma is another man's data. So number one, could you explain what that means? And number two, uh, you know, when we've talked off uh, record, you've sort of explained that it's gamma what kills you. So could you explain you know why you know what gamma does in order to kill people? Yeah. Um, so I actually I actually ripped that off from one of my friends. But uh, I, I love the saying, right? One man's day is another man's gamma. Um, you have people, let's say, in the retail space that say, hey, you know, I love selling, I love selling vol because I get to collect this data, right? But you're, you're receiving that data because you're giving someone else the opportunity to earn 
if the thing blows it through the roof, right? It's like uh, one thing I've learned in the market is like nothing is for free. There's you know there's no free lunch, and if there is free lunch, if, if you know you you're probably biting into a rock, right? It's not uh, it's not a real free lunch, um, and so that, that's really what uh, what it, what it means is that um, you know one man's data, right? Collecting that you know collecting that premium, or collecting that uh, that decay on the option is going to be someone else's gamma, right? They're inverse to each other. And that person on the other side is saying, hey, I actually think this is actually going to explode, right? This thing is going to, is going to move quite a bit. But the person selling the option is saying, I don't think so. Or who's, whoever's long theta. Um, so that's really what it means for that. And it's not, um, it's, 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 it's not too deep. Also, uh, on Twitter, there was a question which went, you know, so recently on Twitter as a whole, you know, we've been, uh, we've seen a lot of talk about sort of the fixed growth. So how are you thinking about future fall issues? Do you think that, you know, the front month fall premiums are deceptively cheap or long day bid is too expensive or neither? And do you think that, you know, there's been too much, uh, too much of a VIX crush in recent months? Yeah, I don't think I'd ever be popular on Twitter, Shabatson, because I don't talk like I I I don't look at the uh, at at the index too much, right? I'm usually looking at you know things that are less efficient. I use the index as a benchmark, right? Where I think, hey, listen, this thing is pretty efficient. You got some of the smartest people in the world trying to price this thing, so I'm going to use this as a benchmark for other products. Um, in terms of you know the VIX getting smoked recently. Right, coming down from from 22, people saying, "Hey, 20 is the floor." Right, I'm sure you saw that. 20 mm-hmm. is the floor. Um, the reality is, we're just coming off of such a high vol vol regime, right? And so, if you if you look at the grand scheme of things, or let's say you know just prior to COVID, 16 vol was extremely high. So, you know, I, I can't really opine on on uh, where I think. Uh, the VIX is going. I haven't looked at it too much, to be honest. I haven't, you know, tried to forecast that too much. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if VIX continued to bleed, right? I think on the S&P, I saw realized vols were, were 11. You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if I, if I saw that continue to bleed. What do you think? What, like, what do you, like, do you think uh, VIX is coming down more? I don't know. I'm not a fall trader, so I, uh, I have no <laughs> And, you know, another question that I got on Twitter is, do you think that there are any aspects of, you know, quant as a whole, like quantitative uh, investor or quantitative trading as a whole that's disregarded or not used because, you know, people think it's overall too simple? Do you think I think it's the person- opposite. I think it's the opposite, Shabazz. I think people, um, they go, they, they try to use all these fancy models uh, and it, it doesn't really take them anywhere. You know, I think there's a huge difference between, uh, maybe not a huge difference, but an important difference between, let's say, someone in academia and someone who's a practitioner, mm-hmm. right? I'm just trying to make this work. I don't, I don't need to know, you know, all, it doesn't have to be perfect. My edge should be big enough that if it's not perfect, you know, I should still, you know, be able to make money, yeah. right? I'm not trying to, you know, I, I see sometimes people talking about trading the Delta Fives. You know the, the the options that are way out of the money, and they're saying, "Hey, you know this this vol is overpriced." You know, due to my my, my because my model saying it should be cheaper. You know, and I'm saying to myself, "Well, does it really matter? Like, 
like, why are you trading the Delta fives or the Delta threes? Right? Like, sure, the options trading for eight cents and you think it should be worth two cents, right? So I'm really trying to focus on that. Does this model do its job? Can it simplify the world for me? Uh, and then if it can do that and I, I trust it, then, mm -hmm. then I'll use it. So I, I would think it's the opposite, Shravatsan. Right. You know, when people build models, so how do you exactly test those models? Do you just plot, you know, your model's predictions versus what actually happened? Or how do you figure out whether a model works? Yeah. Uh, usually I like to um, spin around, close my eyes, spin around three times, and then, uh, you know, come up with a conclusion uh, after that. Um, I don't know, in, in, all, in all seriousness, Shravatsan, um, I, I, I would say I let, um, I let a lot of, a lot of other smart people, uh, work on them, work on the models. And I try to, you know, interpret them from exactly, exactly. Right? I'm not trying to reinvent, reinvent the wheel. Um, I, I'm trying to take their ideas, maybe make small tweaks to it, uh, to try to fit, uh, you know, fit in my, in, in, in my world. Um, it, but in, in regards to, let's say forecasting, right. Building my own, my own model to forecast. It's, it's super simple models for Vatson. Um, and then letting, you know, letting the computer tell me what, uh, how, how important each variable is in, uh, in forecasting. Got it. And to wrap up the podcast, I wanted to ask you, could you talk a little bit about what you guys do at predicting alpha and, you know, how that, how that thing started as a whole. Yeah. So in, in, uh, I'm sure, you know, but, uh, we were just chatting about this, uh, I wasn't a very good student in school. Mm -hmm. um, I would, you know, I'd be in the, at the Bloomberg terminal all day, every day, right? Um, and you're skipping classes, and you, you know, just, 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 just so I could, you know, be, spend more time on the terminal. Um, and, you know, once, once school finished, uh, there was no more Bloomberg. So I had to kind of create uh, something for myself uh, that I could use, let's say, you know, for volatility trading. Right. I, I, I didn't see any other software out there that could uh, really help me there. Um, and it started off with, you know, a project for myself for, for earnings. And then it started to get bigger and bigger. And eventually I teamed up with, uh, with my partner, Sean, and we decided to bring um, a, a volatility trading software, uh, you know, to, to the retail traders where it's not going to be uh, too costly. Right. And you can try and get uh, or you can really see volatility insights. Um, and yeah, so you, you guys can check it out, uh, predictingalpha.com. You know, it's, uh, you guys can try it out for free. Got it. Any closing thoughts? Um, no, I'm just, I just, re I really enjoyed, enjoyed this podcast and it's, it's great. It's great seeing you again, man. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, Jordan. It was awesome having you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.